Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, so this is a very stupid and horrible joke. I heard it as a little kid. Here it goes. Why don't Batman and Robin go fishing more often? Because Robin eats all the worms. He wasn't kidding. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from musician Trevor Powers, a.k.a. Youth Lagoon. He has a new single out this week. And coming up, we'll speak with Michael Apted, director of the landmark 7-Up documentary series. Also coming up, the director of Sundance tells us how to throw a film festival. Author Manuel Gonzalez tells us how not to bury a body. And the writer whose article inspired the film Argo tells us three other film-worthy tales. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Lance Armstrong finally talking about the use of illegal drugs. President Obama unveiled a far-reaching agenda today to address gun violence. At Sunday's Golden Globe ceremony, Ben Affleck walked away with Best Picture Drama. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He's a senior writer for the arts and culture section of the Atlantic Wire blog. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about Drew Barrymore's new wine. Oh. Like she's complaining about her <laughs> no, lack, of, lack of good no. roles? <laughs> no. It's wine, like actually wine that you drink. Um, Drew Barrymore has, like the Coppola's before her, uh, entered the wine biz, <laughs> the fast and furious uh, wine industry. That's where she's been because she hasn't been making movies Right. Recently. No, she, she she made that one about the whales and then was like, i got to do something else. Yeah. And... <laughs> she had some wine afterwards yeah. and decided to just keep going. Yeah. What I mean, does she have a background in winemaking like the Coppola's? Or? No, I think that, I don't know, It's it, it, in the ads for it, there's, there's like a website and it has all these pictures. It's mostly just Drew Barrymore wandering around, sun-kissed in some sort of vineyard, staring off into the distance. So I think she's trying to sell it as this laid-back California living kind of thing. All right. But it's like <laughs> kind of a cheap Pinot Grigio. So Richard, you cover arts and culture. You know, I see signs for Brad Pitt selling perfume. Yeah. Right. Why? When people like Brad Pitt and Drew Barrymore's case, I mean, I think it's just boredom. And someone's like, hey, do you want to do this weird thing? And you're like, oh, sure, whatever. I mean, But what's the I, appeal to us? Why do I mean, clearly, Drew Barrymore is not, you know, crushing the grapes here. Why do we care that her name yeah. happens to be slapped on the bottle? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe um, a certain demographic wants to be carefree and, you know, drinking a nice white wine outside like Drew is. So, you know, Hey, that wait appeals. a second. Has anyone ever tasted Brad Pitt's perfume? Because I wonder if oh, it isn't the same. Oh, man. Same gold liquid. That's a good question. <laughs> it's just the sweat for, of celebrities. That's yeah. just what comes out of them. Uh, Richard Lawson, thank you so much for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, enough wine. It's time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our world-famous history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1884, the first roller coaster was patented. Now, the folks at your dinner party are probably tall enough to ride a coaster, but we bet they don't know its origins. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It was the late 19th century, and LaMarcus Adna Thompson was losing his mind. He was a natural carpenter and inventor, but somehow he'd ended up in the pantyhose business. It made him a fortune and also gave him a near-nervous breakdown. So, in the early 1880s, he sold his company and looked for inspiration to build something. He found it in Mount Chunk, Pennsylvania, where decades earlier, a coal company had built what's called a gravity railroad. 
a nine-mile downhill track that let him transport coal out of the mine. By the 1880s, the railway wasn't used for mining anymore. Instead, people paid 50 cents each to ride down it. It gave Thompson an idea. He'd make a miniature gravity railroad and install it in the up-and-coming resort town of Coney Island, Brooklyn. In 1884, Thompson opened his, quote, switchback railway, America's first roller coaster. Space Mountain, it wasn't. Passengers sat in a car. It rolled down a track. Then workers pushed it up onto another track, which the car rolled down in the other direction. Top speed, six miles an hour. But thrill-seekers flocked to it anyway. The railway cost 1600 bucks to build and brought in 700 bucks a day. Soon, roller coasters sprung up around the country, and Coney Island was one of the best places to ride them. At one point, it was home to three amusement parks. Even today, the island's most famous landmark is a coaster, Cyclone. It opened in 1927 on the site of Thompson's original Switchback Railway. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a cocktail to go along with it. I am joined by James Quigley, part owner of Peggy O'Neill's, which is a bar on Coney Island. And are you actually under the cyclone, the, the, the roller coaster there, James? We're actually a few blocks away from it. All right. Well, can you see it? How's it, how's it doing? Cyclone is still chugging along nice. It is a New York City landmark. See, the idea of a roller coaster being a landmark actually frightens me because that means it's old, and then I'm scared that it's not up to it, code. It might be old, but <laughs> let me tell you, when Astroland was running the cyclone roller coaster, there were guys. So Astroland was a, a company that operated it before? Is that what you're saying? They were the operators of the cyclone for the probably past 25 years, probably even more. There were guys that would walk the tracks every day with a bucket of nails and replace any nail that came out. I'm not sure if that story is meant to inspire confidence or not. <laughs> but it's like I've written it a few times. If you're in the first car, you know, you're in the front. That's invigorating. If you're in the last car, that's where you get shaken up, though. That's where it's like, you know, make sure you book a chiropractor appointment the following day. <laughs> All right. Well, you do you have a drink inspired by our history of the roller coaster? Yes, we do, actually. We have a signature drink at Peggy O'Neill's called the Thunderbolt. The Thunderbolt. Okay. The Thunderbolt was one of the other signature roller coasters in Coney Island as well. Okay. That roller coaster was actually featured in the Woody Howland movie Annie Hall. Ah, okay. It's the roller coaster he supposedly grew up under. Mm-hmm. Just take an eight-ounce glass, fill it with ice. Okay. You want to start off with two ounces of an orange-infused vodka. All right. The orange is there because it brings your old days of creamsicles and just any type of orange-flavored drink that you would get in Coney Island. Yeah, kind of a classic uh, seaside holiday dessert there. Yeah, classic taste. Okay. Next, you want to take two ounces of cranberry juice on top of that. All right. Cranberry juice is going to give you the colors. You know, there's a little red influence that was in the Thunderbolt roller coaster. So we're using cranberry not just for flavor, but for a little coloring as well. A little panache. I like it. And then to give you the rush, I mean, hey, you're on the Thunderbolt roller coaster. You take that first step, you're going to get a rush. So we're going to replace that rush with Red Bull. Make sure that your heart's pounding as if you were just on a roller coaster. Pounding, screaming, ready for more. So, Rico, a little more trivia. All right. In 1977, a guy named Richard Rodriguez rode the cyclone for 104 hours straight. <laughs> and that was a Guinness record. And it stood for 30 years before someone else broke the record. Okay. At which point, Richard broke that guy's record by riding a different coaster for 401 hours. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> of course, after hour 200 or so, the whiplash had knocked him unconscious. Yeah, so at that point, he's just like a crash test dummy. It was scary. <laughs> Folks, you can duplicate the feeling by trying all our cocktail recipes. Mm. They're at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is journalist Josh Behrman. He's written for magazines like Harper's and Rolling Stone, and for radio shows like This American Life. But he's best known for a piece that led to one of the year's most celebrated movies. Here he is to tell us about it and his list. My name is Josh Behrman. I'm a magazine writer. I wrote a piece several years ago in Wired magazine, which was about a CIA mission during the Iran hostage crisis and which miraculously has been adapted into the feature film Argo, which is in theaters now and which you might be seeing this weekend. Uh, I have a list here of several other articles that I think also would make great films on the big screen. And here they are. My first pick is this article from Men's Journal a few years ago called Into the Zombie Underworld by Misha Berlinski. Nobody talks about this story, even though it was the best story of the year. This guy was living in Haiti, he's the actual writer, and he starts hearing about, oh, there's a zombie in town. So-and-so has been turned into a zombie. The woman's name is, I think it's pronounced Nadat. So the writer gets to thinking, well, like, what is the deal? Is that real? Is it true? Like, what is the story? Like, how does this work? And he starts trying to find the woman. And he sort of finds himself unspooling this whole system of zombie culture there. There's some kind of plant that sorcerers synthesize toxin out of it, and then they put it on you, and it makes you appear dead, and then you get buried, and it's so traumatizing that when you are taken out of the grave by your sorcerer captors, you kind of believe you're a zombie. And the system of sorcery is specialized and regionalized. You have to, to take one zombie from one area to the other. you got to get permission from the local sorcerer. So it's like human trafficking, basically. That's what this guy discovers. It's just totally insane. Eventually, the writer has this interpreter going to these conclaves of sorcerers trying to bargain back for this woman. I think it'd be great as a movie because it's like a zombie noir, right? This guy kind of winds up playing the role of private investigator. <laughs> My second pick is a story called The Last Ride of Cowboy Bob by Skip Hollinsworth, one of the great magazine writers of our time, maybe of all time. This one's from some time ago. It's about the series of bank robberies. A guy dressed like a cowboy, Cowboy Bob, who is going in, no guns, passing a note, getting money, and doing that over and over again. And eventually it turned out it was actually a woman, Peggy Joe. She's like this nice, sweet Texas lady that everybody says, oh, you'd never imagine that Peggy Joe would rob a bank. Life didn't turn out the way that she wanted. She's taking care of her sick mother, and at a certain point, her mom dies. So she kind of very politely, Southern hospitality style, starts robbing these banks in disguise. Then one day, she's robbing a bank, and the cops get her as she's leaving the bank in this RV that she's driving around. Eventually the door opens, and she comes out and has a gun, and she is killed. And then they realize that she has a, it's a toy gun. It's really this heartbreaking story. It's very beautiful it would be a 70s style movie, you know, where there's this like haunting tragedy at the end. And those are the best kind. Okay, so the third pick is My Father and Me, a spy story, which is by Yudijit Bhattacharji. He wrote this great piece in GQ about this CIA agent who 
turned out to have been providing secrets to the Soviets. This is in the 90s. The guy is in prison, and his son, who kind of idolized the dad but was seen to be kind of socially troubled, reconnected with his dad by making prison visits, and then his dad recruited him to be his kind of agent on the outside and pick up the spy trade. Sure, I would have loved to have written a story like that. Fathers and sons, sad dad who's proud but stuck in prison. He wants to, you know, is exploiting his son, but maybe also wants to see his son excel at something because the son is lost. There's some interesting stuff in there. If I was casting this, I don't know, maybe the dad would be Brian Cranston, Walter White in Breaking Bad, the good guy gone wrong, and the son could be, well... The casting people would like to hear Ryan Gosling, <laughs> you know. A handsome young kid could also sort of be vulnerable. The Lars and the real girl Ryan Gosling, the sad case. Josh Behrman, the Oscar-nominated movie Argo, was inspired by his article, Escape from Tehran, How the CIA Used a Fake Sci-Fi Flick to Rescue Americans from Iran. The title pretty much says it all. <laughs> I know. There's their story. Maybe we should call our show the Talking About Movies, Music, Books, Drinks, and Food program. That's Ben Affleck. There's your sequel. Call us here. Folks, more of books, music, etc. when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, author Manuel Gonzalez can't find his wallet, but he knows where the bodies are buried. And later, acclaimed director Michael Apted rages against the machine. You know, I can throw things at the television under the slightest provocation. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, every week you ask us questions about how to behave, and sometimes we have celebrities answer your questions, and sometimes we have celebrities of etiquette answer your questions. And those would be Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post herself. They stop by our studios once a month to keep us in line. They are co-authors of the 18th edition of the Emily Post Manners Manual, and they help run what must be the politest place on earth, the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. Lizzie and Dan, welcome back. Hi. Always a pleasure. <laughs> I'm glad. How it's, it's a little early in the year. I think it's safe to ask you how your uh, New Year's resolutions are going. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't really? make any? What are you talking about? I'm perfect. My inbox is clear. I'm making my yoga classes. Nothing. My resolution is not to answer questions, only ask them this year. All right. so. oh, I like that. Yeah. Why don't you do some of those? I was going to say, this puts you in a good position for this section of the show. I will ask the first question, which comes from Samsara in Pasadena, California. Mm. Today at breakfast, there was a discussion about the appropriate way to exit a party. I think it's important to say hi to the host when you arrive, but you don't always have to say goodbye. It can disrupt the flow of the party or signal to the host that the party is winding down, which in fact may not be the case. My friend said the one time she tried that, 20 minutes later, the host of the party texted her saying, where are you? I wanted to talk to you about something. Did you leave? And my friend felt rude, like she had snuck out. Mm. What is the correct way to handle this? You are wrong. <laughs> Samsara is wrong. You definitely want to say goodbye to your host. You you never want to just sneak out of a party. The way that you avoid making it seem like, oh, this party's a drag, so it's winding down and people should leave, as you say, <laughs> I'm so sorry I have to leave so that the host knows that it's not about that you're not having a good time. But don't they also know that that could be 
be a lie. You're just being polite. Maybe you really don't have to be anywhere. Yeah, that's life. <laughs> <laughs> More tough love. More what? tough love from my corner. Because, you know, the problem for me is if you go to find the host to say goodbye, then suddenly you end up saying goodbye, especially if there's a lot of people at the party, to everyone there. You end up staying for another half hour saying goodbye to people. Well, Lizzie's yeah. got, got the A-plus answer, of course, because you got to say goodbye. you got to thank your host. Yeah. Of course, there are going to be times, more informal situations, a really roaring event where, yeah, if it would absolutely distract the person or, or you can't say goodbye to every single person there. That I agree with, yeah. Maybe you get out the door, but making an effort to say goodbye and thank your host At least is the definitely host. the standard. Maybe there's uh, something we can learn from Samsara's question, which is we could all, you could also text the other people that you weren't saying goodbye to. <laughs> right? You say goodbye to the host, and then you just quickly text. Do a mass I, text. Yeah. It's funny, because the kind of informal thing I was thinking, if you had to slip out, you couldn't catch the host, it was an inappropriate time, you might even follow up with a little quick note or text. This or, is sounding like a lot of work. I'm not going to parties anymore. No yeah. way. All right, we're not going to invite you. <laughs> Here's our second question. This is from Stephanie in Vermont. Yay! She's one of your homies. Homie. She writes, my boyfriend is a chef and has horrible table manners. <laughs> Despite coaxing and the evil eye, he persists in holding his silverware with his fists <laughs> and ignoring basic table manners. Is Dan single? That's such a weird question, <laughs> Stephanie. That's not an etiquette question. <laughs> what? She, she continues, we would love to eat out, and I am graduating law school this year, Ooh. so we find ourselves in more and more formal dining situations. After five years, my nagging is proving to be ineffective. How do I convince him to shape up? Yeah. Nagging generally does prove to be ineffective. <laughs> I think this is one where it's not going to change unless he can be convinced and and really feel genuinely that he does need to make this change. And yeah. telling him that he's looks like a slob or he's a total cretin is not ever going to do it. So I'm hoping he's the kind of guy that would understand that your business world is going to be one that he's going to participate in sometimes and that that is a place where he needs to have that level of skill when dining out with someone else. And if you really can't prove it to him, put a mirror in front of him while you guys eat dinner at home one night and see if he can see it. (laughs) I think anybody would be frightened by looking at themselves when they eat. All right. But that's actually like an exercise we tell people to do, like go out to eat with yourself for a night and see if you like to sit across from you. Guys, there's a deeper question here, though. I mean, haven't you seen this movie before? (laughs) Stephanie is changing. (laughs) Yes. She's got a law degree. I don't know if their lifestyles are ever going to mesh. And and there might be some compromise here. You know, honey, or dear or sweetie, what what happens in the privacy and the comfort of our home is is really something we could talk about. We can negotiate. (laughs) Oh, I see. So, like, if you're a nice guy out at the fancy restaurant tonight, I will allow you to eat off the floor (laughs) this evening. A little dispensation. (laughs) Exactly. Well, if she's really going to be a lawyer, they're not going to have a lot of time to eat out soon. So That's true. Yeah, right. I don't think we'll have to worry about this. You'll be fine, Stephanie. All right. We have a question from David in Fort Collins, Colorado. I am often in Starbucks or other coffee shops that have a community bin of newspapers. Is it okay to take the newspaper section with you to continue reading, or is this a theft from the community bin? Note, I consider this a theft, a minor but nonetheless <laughs> meaningful infraction akin to the tragedy of the commons. My coffee-drinking mate thinks differently. Yes. Discuss. Wow. Ooh, discuss. Um, <laughs> this is a good question. I, I think about it. I, I have the same dilemma. Yeah. Thief. Really? I say uh, get the stocks ready. Really? Whoa. You cannot take a newspaper. It's just a newspaper. It's a public newspaper. It's a public newspaper. Exactly. Not a private newspaper. Uh, It's a public newspaper. Look at that. (laughs) 
You guys are pros. Well, maybe it's like it's like, it's like a bowl of mints. You don't take the mint till your breath is clean and put it back. You take the newspaper. <laughs> but you don't take the but you don't take the bowl of mints with you so that nobody has ah. good breath. You take a couple. So you take the art section on the subway, say, and leave behind business section for boring business people. Now, what if you bring it back later? I do that, like at the doctor's office or the dentist's office. If it's a really good article, I'll bring it back the next week or something. That's true. Although it's not quite as up to the point of a newspaper is that it's the news when it's a little older, a little when less. A little older, yeah. When it says 2011, it's okay. I imagine your car just full of old newspapers you intend to redistribute to doctor's offices around Vermont. It's on my to-do calendar. But I, I sense that there is a that you guys are split on this. It sounds like Lizzie. Oh, yeah, we are. Really? So we you are. think that it's I, okay? I steal them. I don't get that annoyed at other people doing that kind of stuff, so I won't begrudge them taking an article and wanting to finish it. I mean, Thief. <laughs> how, about, how about this? One quick comment on okay. this. Is it okay to do the crossword puzzle and then <laughs> leave it? Yeah, how good is it? <laughs> See, that's what I Did take. You do if, it correctly? If I found a finished crossword, I would take it and carry it on the train as if I... I finished it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like your crossword beard. <laughs> crossword beard is one of the least known pirates. You're smart. Lizzie Post okay. and Daniel Post setting. Thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Most welcome. Have <laughs> Take a good care, one. guys. Wait, you're leaving? This just started. <laughs> now everyone's going to leave. Yeah. So basically the show is over. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I left a note on your fridge. <laughs> Look for my thank you text. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Setting. They are co-authors of the 18th edition of the Emily Post Manners Manual. And folks, if you have a question for them or for one of our far less qualified celebrity guests, send it to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org, click contact, and tell us what your problem is. And now, time to eavesdrop. Writer Manuel Gonzalez has published stories in Esquire and The Believer. He also directs a youth writing center called the Austin Batcave. This month, his debut story collection earned wide acclaim for its offbeat scenarios and dark humor. Today, we overhear him reading from it. Hi, my name is Manuel Gonzalez, and I just released a collection, The Miniature Wife and Other Stories. And today, I'm going to read an excerpt from one of those uh, called Cash to a Killing. Basically, it's about two guys who bury a body, and as usually happens when two guys go to bury a body, things go wrong. We had spent the past hour burying the body and were on our way to grab a hamburger. I had been worried at first that the body would be too difficult to lift. I'd only had Roger with me, and he'd never done this sort of thing before. Usually I've got two other guys, big guys, for the heavy lifting. I'm not a big guy, and neither is Roger, and I've heard that dead weight is really heavy. When Roger moved then to the midsection of the body, wrapped his arms around the guy's waist, I told him, no way, man, you've got to pick him up from one of the ends, head end or foot end, not the middle. But Roger's always been good at ignoring what he doesn't want to hear, and so when he continued with his flawed plan, straddling the body, wrapping his arms around the waist before changing his mind and grabbing the guy by his belt loops, then bending his knees, he had a bad back from when he worked at an ice cream shop and heaved. I expected him to topple forward, maybe land inappropriately but humorously on top of the guy in a lover's embrace, you might say. I wish I could say that killing the guy was an accident and maybe if you were to take the long view of the situation, take into account the events of his life, those of my life of Rogers, 
the arbitrary successes and failures that befell the three of us, or even further back befell our parents and grandparents, great-grands, back to our oldest ancestors and determined that it was some accident of fate that he ended up who he was and I ended up who I am and Roger ended up as Roger, you might say it was an accident. But taking the short view of things, we killed him deliberately and for a specific purpose. And despite Roger's argument, just because we killed the wrong guy doesn't change for me the fact of the matter. He was the guy we intended to kill. We killed him. End of story. What ticked me off more than the wasted time was the fact that now I had not only killed the wrong guy, but that I still had to kill the right guy, as well as the guy who gave me the bogus information about the guy I just killed. That's three guys, when I'd only planned on one, at most two depending on how I decided to handle Roger after it was all said and done. Effectively tripling my work, which was all I could think about as we walked back to the van. That and how hungry I was, which is why I suggested we grab a burger, maybe a soft serve too, on the way back home. It was about the time that Roger pulled into the Whataburger that he realized he dropped his wallet. Uh-oh, he said. Uh-oh what, I said. No wallet, he said. Don't sweat it, I said. I'll cover you. No, he said. That's not what I mean. I'm not sure why the jerk brought his wallet to a killing in the first place, as it seems common sense to me. Bring cash to a killing. No credit cards, no license, no ID, unless it's fake and it's got a bogus picture on it. So we drove back to where we buried the body, hunted around for Roger's wallet for about 20 minutes, until he comes to the conclusion that he must have dropped it into the hole. Into the hole, I said, you're positive? I'll go get the shovels, he said. After another hour of slow digging slow because we didn't want to accidentally dig up and throw back Roger's wallet with all the dirt and muck, we hit the body. Only for me to then realize that it was the wrong body. Not that wrong body, but an entirely different wrong body. At which point, so we didn't keep digging pointlessly and so Roger wouldn't hop into the hole and see for himself who's wrong body, I said, this ain't him. Author Manuel Gonzalez, find out just how much darker that tale gets by reading his new collection, The Miniature Wife and Other Stories. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, when I say United Kingdom, you think? Tea. Right. I'm a big tea drinker. Yes, and maybe crumpets with Maybe tea. tooth decay, a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> okay, from all the sugary tea and crumpets. But what I don't think most folks would think of is American cuisine. Hmm. And yet, according to a recent article in Britain's Guardian newspaper, our cuisine is the UK's latest food fad. So the other day I spoke to Katie Salter. She wrote this article, and I started by asking her exactly what she meant by American food. I'm talking about the American comfort foods that have become this huge trend in Britain. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the kale salads that are storming Brooklyn. I'm not talking about, like, Creole cooking. I'm not talking about, like, the wonderful diversity that is American cooking. I'm particularly talking about... The bad stuff. Uh, yeah, the bad stuff, but made gourmet, which was a trend, particularly in America a few years ago in places like New York, and is very much a trend right now, especially in London. I... Burgers, barbecue, hot dogs 
dogs, mac and cheese. So the comfort foods, but maybe made with like more high-end ingredients. Uh, I see. So a gourmet hamburger, Gruyere mac and cheese. Yes, like that. all that. Yeah, truffle mac and cheese and hamburgers made with 35-day-aged beef, that kind of thing. All right. Now, I mean, that I guess the gourmet part of that is a trend. But otherwise, is this really that new? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a typical conceited American imperialist, but we have been <laughs> exporting our popular culture to Europe for better or worse since probably after World War II, right? Yeah, that's true. And I think there's always been a sort of British love-hate relationship with those imports. Yeah, um, deservedly so, I would say. <laughs> well, yeah, I think World War II, you made a very interesting point because there was obviously a very big difference between America and Britain after World War II. You guys, was, your economy was booming, yeah. there's diners and drive-ins. And, and in Britain, rationing still went on until the mid-50s. I think that was when American food, American pop culture really became an appealing export because we were looking over the pond and seeing, you know, milk shakes and chrome diners and then back in Britain meat and milk and sugar were still rationed. Sure that was a, a treat. And then probably conversely that was when British food got a bad reputation around the world because American GIs and other people were going back to their countries going British food sucks this is like <laughs> just soggy vegetables and that's because you know the it, food traditions were getting lost because all the food was rationed. Well let me actually bring this up because one thing that puzzles me about hearing about this sort of American food resurgence trend is that it was less than a year ago that we talked with a British food historian who said the big trend in Britain at the time was the resurgent popularity of traditional British Victorian desserts like Winifred pudding and gooseberry fools and stuff. Is that still happening? I mean, yeah, there is. There's definitely a revival of traditional recipes and ingredients. And for maybe the last 10, 20 years, there's been a huge revival in sort of Brit using British produce, going back to traditional recipes, a sort of real pride in our food. But this has kind of almost come out of nowhere, I feel like, and it's almost in danger of eclipsing all the good work that, of the food <laughs> movement because it's such a hipster trend starting in London and moving out. And there's burger apps in London now. There's burger blogs, you know, like to look on Instagram. It's like a, it's a burger fest. Why, why do you think it's happening? I don't know. I think there's, there's several reasons. I think Brits do love traveling to America. They travel to New York and they pick up on all the trends there. There's a sort of young generation of restaurateurs in their 20s and 30s who seem to be leading this trend, opening the burgers, the fried chicken, the hot dog restaurants. And these guys are my peers, so they probably grew up with the same things I did, you know, Back to the Future and Greece and this that kind of American 80s revival of 50s nostalgia. Um, That's so interesting. So, so they're inspired by American 80s culture, which is inspired by 50s culture. Yeah. I mean, you, you remember like in the 70s, it started things like Happy Days started coming out and it was like America was nostalgic for the 50s. And then we started watching all those shows and movies. So people my yeah. age are probably, we still have this sort of idealized image of America, you know, the diner in Back to the Future, that kind of thing. Our nostalgia is catching, basically. Yeah. Your nostalgia is catching because it's kind of a bit more neon and shiny and sunny than our nostalgia. I will say, though, there is, a, I, I have to take issue with another tenet of your piece, which is that the British love of U.S. food is, quote, unrequited. Right. Because <laughs> this, this may not be nationwide, but where I am in L.A., where there is actually a big British population, there are ever more gastropubs serving takes on British fish and chips. There's a there's a place called Waterloo and City, named after the uh, tube uh, line, of course, that's doing amazing things with British-inspired dishes. Are you aware of this? That's brilliant. And that's if any American that realizes that British food isn't just all stodge is 
you know that's that's fantastic news you're welcome i think i use the analogy of the special relationship it's something like yes there are definitely american anglophiles and there are definitely gastropubs in new york and la and chicago but i don't think you can compare the level of interest i think it's unequal this relationship i don't feel like you're gonna have like a pasty craze (laughs) sweeping america in the same way that people are just going nuts for burgers over here It's, it's it's there's there's a disparity there if i i just want you to know from one anglophile to an anglo that <laughs> if there was a pasty explosion i would be the happiest person ever because i love those awesome things. <laughs> well you need to make that happen then <laughs> i'll do my best katie salter thanks so much for talking to us today thank you And Brendan, pasties are, of course, kind of tasty, savory British pies. Mm -hmm. And it turns out an Englishman has started a mini chain of pasty restaurants in Arizona. Weird. They are hoping to expand to Vegas, so maybe we will see an English food chain spread across America. This is possible. But wait a second, isn't McDonald's... That's Scottish. Oh, yeah. You're thinking of. I forgot about that. Uh, Folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, the director of the Sundance Film Festival tells us why it's no place for the week. No. When the dinner party continues. Puddings and pies. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from the Cold War Kids. But first, it's time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. Yes, and today the topic is the Sundance Film Festival, one of the foremost showcases in America of new independent movies. The festival started this week in Park City, Utah, and runs through the 27th. And Rico, if Park City was wiped out between now and then, God forbid. We'd, we'd pretty much only have Transformer sequels to watch for the rest of the year. Perhaps our lives. Yeah, that and rom-coms. <laughs> Transformer rom-coms. No. And that's scary to think about. We must protect Park City at <laughs> Call all Call the cost. National Guard. <laughs> that's what I've learned today. All right. Anyway, our expert this week is John Cooper. He's been involved with the festival for 24 years and is now its director, Mm. making him one of the most influential guys in independent film. When I met with him the other day, I decided to conduct a different sort of interview. So I've gathered some facts about the festival, and I was going to present them to you and have you comment on them. So it'll be kind of like an audio Rorschach test. Are you game? (laughs) Yes. All right. So here's the first fact. The 1978 festival featured films such as Deliverance, Midnight Cowboy, Mean Streets, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Wow, is that true? (laughs) (laughs) I'm asking you. 1978. That's before we were involved. Because it used to be the USA Film Festival, and then then we took it over from them, and it was mainly in the early years, it was all about regional filmmaking, which was a concept back then. There were going to be filmmakers that stayed in their states and in their hometowns and made films, which never really... They all started, you know, drifting to either New York or L.A. or, you know, Austin. Yeah. Or, you know, so that, that sort of went the wayside. And it just really became about independent film as that sort of movement began to kick off. But that really didn't start till Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was, what, 1989, I believe. And for those who don't know, Sex, Lies, and Videotape was an independent film made by Steven Soderbergh, which won the competition. And then that movie went on to make tons of money. And it kind of sparked the independent movie fever of the 90s. Yeah. So another fact, the move from late summer to midwinter, because I guess originally the festival was in late summer, 
was reportedly done on the advice of Hollywood director Sidney Pollack, who suggested that running a film festival in a ski resort during winter would draw more attention from Hollywood. Probably that's a little bit true. I think uh, <laughs> he was a big guiding force in, in all that we did at Sundance. Sidney Pollack was. They were, he was a great friend of Redford as well. I think we were looking, yes, for anything to draw people there, that there was this notion. I think we actually thought maybe we could get things cheaper mm. if it was a time when they were trying to draw tourist trade to the town. Redford claims now that he really likes the hardness of, of everything, and it is hard. Doing doing a, a festival in the middle of a, a snowstorm is not the—you <laughs> never know what you're going to get, but that's not the most fun thing every year. He thinks it is keeping the— Hanger on and the weak people out, and you know, only the oh. truly serious independent filmmakers will come at that. So he thinks it somehow maintains the, the integrity of the festival. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> All right, this is here's a fact that goes to the integrity of the festival. Uh, directors who have received their big break at Sundance include Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino, David O. Russell, Paul Thomas Anderson. The list goes on and on and on. Why, what is the secret to your success? The secret is really having this platform that works to be able to support them at this time. Yeah, they all did come through. They're all kids, you know. It wasn't, you you weren't actually ever sure who's going to have the sticking power, who's going to have the big career. David O. Russell himself was a driver for us, one of the festivals. Wait, he literally was a driver? Yeah, he was a volunteer <laughs> at the festival. Huh. And then he made a few shorts. A lot of them come through the shorts. Shorts are very big. The making of short films is a stepping stone to a bigger career is what's always been a part of Sundance. That's how I started, basically. I'd be, I started the shorts program, mm. you know, when they handed me a, a box of films and told me, you know, put something together out of this if you can. I think that year was Alexander Payne's film, and I think a David O. Russell film was in mm. that mix. All right, so th that was my bag of tricks when okay. it comes to fun facts. But I have so a couple questions. Like the festival's going to start. Everyone's excited. There's films. The hot chocolate's flowing. <laughs> but you, John Cooper, are in high gear. What are what are some things on your daily agenda that the average person might not? <laughs> think about. I spend a lot of time in a car. I spend a lot of time running around um, doing a lot of, I introduce, we introduce all the filmmakers and run all the Q&As. So I'm, I'm standing backstage in a lot of magical moments with filmmakers before they go on to introduce their film for a first time. And that's mm. a sweet moment. Does one stand out in particular? Kind of. I remember Paul Thomas Anderson at the festival. You know, he was all of like something like 120 pounds or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, I remember backstage with Miranda July. There's just a lot of them. And, and it's just me and that, that filmmaker generally. And we don't really talk a lot. We just sort of have our little private moments. All right, well, I'm going to let you go, but I, I will ask you this. Is there one word or, or name that you, I know you can't play favorites with the director, <laughs> but one on the other side of this festival, give me something that's going to be buzzing, do <laughs> the you think? other side of this festival. I think, I'm going to give you two names. Okay. Um, Naomi Watts and Robin Wright. Okay. They're in a film called um, Two Mothers, and I, I find it sort of a fascinating film, and I think that they're going to pop as a, kind of an amazing performance by those two women in that movie. John, thank you so much for coming by and chatting with us. Thank you. So, Rico, another fact about Sundance. All right. Of the 160 films running at the festival, the average attendee will view about six. Wow. So, uh, so that's a 10-day fest and uh, mm -hmm. less than a movie a day. 
<laughs> what else could they possibly be doing at a ski resort in winter? I have no idea. Thinking about movies? That is what they're telling their bosses. All right, folks, we have over 180 past episodes of The Dinner Party on our website. Dang. Go listen to six of them at dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker Michael Apted. He directed the Oscar-winning movie Coal Miner's Daughter and more recently Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the latest installment of the Narnia movie franchise. But since 1971, he has also directed the documentary series Up, in which he has followed the same group of Britons every seven years as they've grown up. Roger Ebert put it on his list of the greatest films of all time. It's certainly on mine. This week, the latest installment, 56 Up, opens in Los Angeles and rolls out across the country over the next couple of months. And Michael, welcome. Good to be talking to you. And likewise. The the first film, 7 Up, was shot in 1964, but you didn't direct that one. How did this come to be your baby seven years later? Well, I researched the original one. I was one of the two researchers sent out to find a group of seven-year-old children who would as it were, represent the English society of 1964, class-ridden, as it were. The film was only ever going to be one film, and there was never any thought of carrying it on, but it was successful, and eventually I was asked, well, have you thought of going back to seeing how all the children are doing? I said, oh, that might be a good idea. And although it was a bit slightly stressful film, there was a lot of grumpy teenagers there, you know, you could see the beginnings of something that I'd describe as a big idea. So from then on, it was really a no-brainer just to keep going back every seven years. It's, I think, the most rewarding and enriching ex- professional experience I've ever had. Now, that said, though, this uh, the series began, as you mentioned, as I look at the British class system. The idea was that by age seven, you might already be able to see where these kids might end up. Like the rich ones were already planning whether they'd go to Oxford or Cambridge, for instance. That's correct, yeah. And are arguing about what newspapers they read. I read the Financial Times. I read Observer and the Times. I like my newspaper because I got shares in it. Do you think that that's proven true? I think it is proven true, but had I started the film a decade later, it might well have had a different outcome. And I think for the generation that was born in the mid-50s, the Mm. class system did determine the, the, the wealthy people knew how their education was going to plan out, and it did, and the less empowered really didn't have much idea what was going on. And that doesn't mean they didn't have happy, successful lives, but as far as opportunities and options go, I, I think the class system did deliver itself in that generation. Something that you've mentioned in other interviews, too, is that you wish that you had accounted more for, you know, you didn't have feminism when you did this. Yeah, I mean, we missed that. I mean, I, it's a bad mistake because for me in my lifetime, you know, the most important revolution really was the changing role of women in in society, in every area of society, and we missed that. How, how would you have done things differently? Well, I would have had, you know, seven men, seven women, frankly. It would you have only four women. An equal balance, but, you know, in 1964, we were looking at... Uh, the picture of English society, and it's a dreadful thing to say, but women didn't really figure in it. And if we were looking who's going to be running the country in the year 2000, which is one of the taglines, really, of the original film, mm. you wouldn't have put a lot of women up there. In fact, you know, we had a prime, woman prime minister <laughs> not, right. not too long after, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s. And so we were way wrong. And there's other things that you miss, uh, obviously, necessarily. Several of the, the now 56-year-old characters remark in this film 
about how dissatisfied they are with their portrayals in the series that you can you can only show a small slice of their lives and yet from that audiences think they know who they all are. I think I'd like to say this and I'd like to say that and then they film me sort of doing all this daft stuff and it goes on, you know, seven days out of every seven years. It's sort of biblical something or other and you know, it's all this excitement and so on and then they present this tiny little snippet of your life and it's like that's all there is to me. I'm sure you shoot hours and hours of footage of these people. How do you decide what slice of them to show, especially knowing that that's the case? You know, they're going to be judged on what you show. Well, I mean, it's a a judgment call. I mean, on my part, every time. Not only am I limited by what I'm shooting now, but I have to be careful of how much of the past I use. You know, it's a tricky balance because that's my greatest card. You know, the advantage I've got over every other film is I've got their past. (laughs) If they talk about the past, lo and behold, there it is. It is an issue, and of course, they complain about it, but I'm happy to listen to the complaints because that in some ways draws the audience's attention to it. That By no means is this a comprehensive look at a person's life. You know, these are choices that I made. But on the other hand, I have to say, I had to laugh when the characters bemoan your time constraints because, I mean, each installment is hours long. There have been eight of them that have been now? Yeah, this is the eighth film, yeah. There's a lot more time than most documentaries have to tell a story. Well, precisely. You know, that, I mean, we can't look a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, it's brilliant that... Granada Television have supported the film over nearly 50 years. What other broadcaster would have done that? That's true. But I actually wonder how you, as a filmmaker, are able to turn from this series, which really gains power from watching people closely for long, long periods of time, to a regular movie where you have two hours max to tell an entire story. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a different animal. You know, I do both features and documentary because they're different muscles, but I think I've always felt that my heart is as a documentarian. But they both have their irritations. You know, when I'm doing a documentary, I think even something like The Apps, I say, why can't they say that quicker? Why can't they say it like this? If I had a good writer, I could do it much quicker. <laughs> You know, and then doing the other things, I think, why do I have to have all this equipment and everything so slow? And why won't the actors come out of their trailers and all this, you know? (laughs) So each has their burden, but uh, I think one helps the other. They both help each other. I wanted to add something that you brought up earlier. You you have the opportunity of having all these characters passed. And something that you do repeatedly, and I love these, is where you'll show a montage of them through time, saying something that they're absolutely sure of, contradicting it seven (laughs) years later. And then what they're saying today, which is something totally different. Yes, I'd say I believed in God. I go to church with my parents on Sundays. Uh, I don't know even now whether I do believe in God or not. I'm a lay minister. I'm licensed to carry out quite a number of functions. It includes leading services. It's mind-blowing to me because it makes me, I guess it makes me question anything that I believe at any point. It's, I now know that seven years from now, I may not even remember having said it. Yeah, I think that's uh, an astute observation. And Going back to your very first question, while there's a certain predictability and certainly the educational choices that they all had because of their class, I don't think there's anything predictable about, you know, the issues they've had to face with in life and the way they've handled them and the way it's formed their characters. While I think you can definitely, in the 56 face, see the little seven-year-old kind of beaming at you, I don't think you could predict, you know, what's happened to a lot of these people. Are you, are you friends with these people now? Well, I'm, I'm more than friends. We, we are, this always sounds a little sickening when I say it, but we are a family. You know, I've, I've known them for nearly 50 years and watched them grow up. And, you know, some of us are close, some aren't. I mean, Bruce is making a trip to California, so he's going to come and stay. So 
There is definitely, we're bonded by something that's kind of a, a bond of blood, if you want. All right. We have two questions that we ask each guest on our program. The first is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Question I would le least about, what hobbies do I have? Really? I would think that there'd be a chance not to talk about movies. Well, I don't have hobbies. That's why I don't <laughs> like to be asked. Really? That is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I keep working, although I'm now in my early 70s, I'm kind of petrified of stopping to work. Because what am I going to do? <laughs> Apart from drive my partner Paige stark raving mad. You just don't do anything except make movies all day. No, I have a lot of things. I mean, I'm a great sports fan. I like to read. I like to ride my bicycle. But I mean... Those are hobbies. These are hardly conversation stoppers. And they are, <laughs> they're not exactly very... I mean, if I said I played the lute or yes. wrote poetry, that would be all right. I don't know. We got a decent enough conversation out of the fact that you don't have a hobby. That's interesting. <laughs> um, the, you've sort of answered my second question, but I'll throw it at you anyway, which is to tell us something we don't know, either about yourself like that, or uh, just something about the world in general? Oh, God. I mean, I just have a very unhealthy interest in, in, in sport, I think. And uh, yeah. I'm ridiculously passionate about it. And I, I do put out a kind of calm exterior. But, can you know, I can throw things at the television and all sorts of things under the slightest provocation. And I'm a, a very, very poor driver. <laughs> I'm possessed in certain situations. And Brendan, I, I really love these movies. And uh, for those who want to see all the previous installments before you see the new one, lots of libraries have them on DVD, and you can stream them on Netflix. And at three or so hours each, it'll take seven years to get through them. Ironic. At which point, 63 Up will be out. Like life, it is a, a long, frustrating process. You will never catch up. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the dinner party for this week. But don't be sad. Don't cry. You, you can always find us on Facebook or on Twitter. The handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Our social network includes Jackson Musker. He is the assistant producer of the Dinner Party. Also, our interns Tamika Adams and James Kim. This is James's last week on the show. Bad. We'd like to thank him for his crackerjack audio editing skills, and we'd like to remind him about the NDA he signed when he took the gig. Stay cool, James. Stay cool, dude. We're warning you. Keep your mouth shut. We'd also like to thank Charlton Thorpe, Chris Peters, Andy Cruz, Ali Lozoff, and Peter Clowney. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. There are a lot of Cold War kids in the world. We're two of them. But there's only one band called the Cold War Kids. They hail from L.A., and they have a new album coming out in April called Dear Miss Lonely Hearts. Here's the first single from it. It's called Miracle Mile. Bon appétit.
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano, and coming this spring. Lisa Smith lost her boyfriend, and she might be losing her mind. I just put a postage stamp on a taco. But when her brother gives her a car, things start to change. Hello, Lisa. You can't talk. You're a car. But I'm also Brad. The romantic comedy that's more than meets the eye. I'm engaged to a Chevy Impala. Love transforms everything. A Rob Reiner, Michael Bay production.